So William, uh, hello? You're doing it? Okay. Kids worship, kids worship, over here. Kids worship over here. Kids worship. Miss Stephanie has a well-deserved break and a vacation in Florida for the first time since 2018, so we are glad that she has taken that time off. She's done so many things, including Camp Runamuck this past week. And the kids are, you got some more kids from upstairs still coming down, so they'll, they'll catch you on the way down uh, at the same time. Today we include our series, The Essentials. We start with Breaking Bread, which we talked about the fact that Breaking Bread is... We break bread together and take communion, right? And then fellowship. Fellowship, we do life what? Together. Then we talked about study. We gather around God's Word what? Together. Then we talked about prayer. We pray what? Together and for each other. And that's important. Then we talked about worship. We worship what? Together. And last week it was small groups. And we meet and we grow together. Now wrap it all up with serving. To serve. And each week we heard amazing stories of transformation. And uh, Shelly has one last one for us about monkeys. About monkeys. If you wonder if those are monkeys up there from your childhood, they are indeed monkeys from your childhood. And uh, so Shelly's in New York on a well-deserved vacation as well. And so she brings this word to us by video. Good morning. This is Shelly McBurney, your Minister of Small Groups and Connections. Good morning and welcome to worship. As we wrap up the Essentials sermon series, I would like to share one final thought about being a disciple-making disciple. Because I love my small group so much, it hurts me to say that small groups may not be for everyone. But everyone can and should be a disciple-making disciple. And even if you are in a small group, oftentimes it's one-on-one relationships that build disciples. Do you remember way back to the first Sunday we began talking about small groups? At that same National Disciple-Making Forum where Barbara Hall discovered the Essentials series studies, I learned how to be a better disciple through monkeys. Yes, I said monkeys. I am the monkey in the middle. I am always reaching up for support, guidance, and teaching from my mentors. People like Mitzi Baker, Pastor Louise, and other Christians more mature than me. And I am always reaching down to help others who need my support and wisdom. Please pray about using this method to be a better disciple-making disciple. Thank you, and God bless. So the monkey handlers, please come up. These are indeed monkeys. Now, monkey handlers, they are packed to the gills. Be very careful. Be very careful with your monkeys. Okay? And uh, one monkey per person. That's right. Just to remind you. One monkey per person. 
When we used this illustration a couple of years ago, or several years ago, I guess now, it's a great one because we're, we're all part of a chain. You know, the barrel of monkeys is more fun than a barrel of monkeys. Well, the whole barrel is fun. So if you imagine if you took every monkey out of this barrel and you put them to connect them all together like you want to do, which is the whole part of the game, right? The more monkeys connected, the better off that you are. So if you're a monkey up here or you're a monkey down here or you're a monkey in the middle or you're a monkey right... Every monkey's important, you see. And there's always usually a monkey above and below, except for the top and the end. And of course, in our, in our system, the monkey chain is endless. So the monkeys go on forever and forever. So take that monkey home to remind you of what Shelley said to you this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to hear your word today, to, to spend these last seven weeks focusing on the essential things that we cannot grow without together as a community. And maybe in some small way or hopefully some large way, we understand better the early church in Acts 2. And what was their secret for success? And how did they design themselves to accomplish the mission? To bring people to you. To make disciples out in the world. So Lord, just pour into the words that I say today and may these help us to bring it all together. And as we end with serving, may we look at it in a different way from the story in Acts 6. Now the early church took a challenge, a crisis, and made it an opportunity. May we also take challenges and crises in our lives and make them opportunities for you as well. In Jesus Christ's name, I ask on behalf of all of us, both here and at home, and together we said, Amen. Welcome to follow along with you version to be able to see all the notes. If you're online, then you're able to see the link for both the bulletin and also you version, and you can follow those two things as we join together this morning. Everybody can be great because everyone can serve. Everyone can be great because every one can serve. These are the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And they remind us of the words of Jesus who declared that he did not come to be, a, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, from Mark 10, 45. And the night before he was crucified, when the weight of the world was on his shoulders, took a towel and a basin and washed the dirty feet of his disciples, and in that one simple gesture he showed forever what sort of man he was and what sort of people we should be. Acts 2, 42-47, our key verses, is what the ideal Christian community looks like in a perfect world. But we don't live in a perfect world, do we? And the early church was no different. Everything is humming along in the early church. We see it in Acts 3 and 4 and 5, but things are starting to get tough. There's starting to be conflict wherever they go. And then in Acts 6, the church actually encounters its first crisis with real people and the community. Acts 6 tells us the story of a sudden and unexpected controversy that threatened to rip apart the early church. 
And it takes place at the end of a period of severe persecution from which the church emerged stronger than ever. Acts 4 tells us there was a time of unusual spiritual unity, the sharing of possessions. And isn't it often that evil attacks at the moment when things are really finally going well? Amen? You see, in seven brief verses, Luke describes the problem, the solution, and the very positive result. When we get to the end, we discover that more people are serving the Lord, more people are being one to Christ, and the unity of the church has been restored. But first, the problem. Acts 6.1 In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. See, the problem stemmed from the fact that although the early church was entirely Jewish, it was made up of two different groups of Jews. The Hebraic Jews were Jewish Christian converts who spoke Aramaic as their main language. They had been born and raised in Israel, knew the customs of the synagogue intimately, and brought their extensive culture with them. By contrast, the Grecian Jews were Jewish Christian converts who spoke Greek because they had been born and raised outside of Israel. And when they came to Christ, they brought their Greek-speaking culture with them which means they probably looked different and certainly acted and sounded different from the Hebrew-speaking Jewish Christians. This is the first case of racial prejudice in the Christian church. And it has gone on ever since, from one group to another, from one sect to another. It comes about primarily because the church had grown so fast it outstretched and outstripped its leadership team. In the early days, the apostles and their helpers could easily care for everyone in the congregation. And as thousands joined the growing movement, it was inevitable that some people or groups of people would fall through the cracks. This was a recipe for trouble. As long as things were going well, the differences could be ignored. We tend to do that. When things are going well, we ignore differences. However, the Jerusalem church was never rich. And eventually their problems in the daily distribution of food for the widows from the two groups came to a head because the Hebrew Jewish Christian widows were being favored over the Greek-speaking Jewish Christian widows. And although I think, although I can't prove it, I think here we have a simple case of the hometown folks being favored consciously or unconsciously. After all, the Hebrew-speaking widows were from Israel. Perhaps had grown up in and around near Jerusalem. They were well-known, had many connections. It's a natural human impulse to take care of your own in times of trouble or shortage. Between Haiti, where it's falling apart, and we visited, and home, many would choose home first. I think it's fairly easy for us to dismiss the fairly minor problem, but it wasn't. 
Churches routinely split over issues much less important than this was. So how should the church tackle a problem like this? If it were us, maybe we would appoint a food distribution task force and report back to the church council. We might call a prayer meeting. Maybe we would end up starting a new church. You know, the Jewish, Christian, Greek-speaking church of Jerusalem, number one. Because if we can't get along, go and form your new church because that makes everything better. Maybe we'd start a two-lunch program. The traditional Hebrew-speaking lunch at 11.30 a.m. and the contemporary Greek-speaking lunch at 1 p.m. If you put matters into those terms, it seems very relevant for us today how we need to be solving these kinds of problems. So then what is their solution? Well, verses 2 through 6 tell us how the early church confronted the difficult issue. And the solution involved the four-step process. Step one, setting priorities. Say setting priorities. Setting priorities. First, there was an immediate response, right? So the twelve gathered all the disciples together. Second, there was a clear statement of priorities. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables, which is what deacon means. Whenever I read those words, they stop me, though, for a moment, because at first glance, they seem kind of harsh from the disciples. We don't have time to deal with this. That's not what they're saying. And I can easily imagine that certain people in the church would have said something like this. Wouldn't it be great if the apostles who are all Hebrew-speaking Jews get together and took over the feeding of the Greek-speaking widows? This would send a powerful and healing message to the congregation, bringing them together. You know, deep in my soul, I feel sure that someone in Jerusalem said or at least thought that when they said these words. After all, what could be better than for the leaders to set the pace personally solving the problem? It's easy. And it's so tempting to adopt that strategy. During my time at Good Shepherd, I have been a crisis manager and a firefighter from the very start. It's what I do best. But to walk in the door on Monday and to see, well, what fire needs to put out this week? What area doesn't work right now? What part of the building's not working the way it's supposed to be? Who's mad at each other this week? What's not working somewhere else? Firefighting, firefighting, putting it out, and I'm good at that. There would have been dead wrong because for them, actually, that would have caused the apostle to disobey God's will and what had been called for them to the ministry of word and prayer. That's the thing that gets lost in firefighting. Anything that moved them away from that priority, no matter how good or noble or necessary it might be, was actually a diversion from their divine calling. And the same principle holds true for spiritual leaders in general. In the church, there are many tasks to be done. And it is tempting to say to the leadership, do a little bit of everything. And that can lead to spiritual disaster. Because when leaders do a little bit of everything, 
they usually end up doing a whole lot of nothing. Amen? Yeah. We know that on staff. We try to do everything people ask us to do. But since the church is built upon the Word of God, some leaders must devote themselves to the study and the teaching of the Word to the congregation. Nothing must be allowed to take away that central priority, you see. Now, obviously, we've moved into another era of church life since the early church, with pastors like myself now being responsible for large budgets and multiple programs and a mountain of administrative details, not to mention the many personal needs of individuals and families trying not to forget our own. But no amount of cultural change obscures the basic truth. Something that I've rediscovered over the last several months Spiritual leaders must focus their efforts on the Word of God and prayer. Not fixing things. The staff has challenged each other to be spiritual leaders first and managers second in what we do. And they have to resist their own desires or attempts to divert them to other worthy causes. I like putting out fires. I like crisis management. I enjoy that, but that's not what I'm supposed to be doing first and foremost. And it may seem hard-hearted, but it really is nothing more than having a biblical focus. We must not let the good crowd out the best or allow the urgent to push the important off of our agenda. And since no one can do everything, spiritual leaders must commit themselves to their primary work of ministering the Word and spending time in prayer. But, step two, they made a plan. It is well and good for the apostles to be high-minded about their calling. But we've got a whole group of hungry widows that need to be fed. What are we going to do about them? After all, if they're not fed, they won't be in any mood to listen to the apostles as they minister to the Word. If your belly's empty, it's a little hard to have your mind filled with God. We still need a plan to handle this problem. So it begins with congregational involvement. Brothers, choose seven men from among you. And then it continues with a clear statement of qualifications known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, and then there's a commitment to define delegation, we will turn this responsibility over to them. And finally, a restatement of their own priorities. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. So you see, wisely, rather than issuing an edict from on high, they ask the congregation to choose the men who will serve the widows. And the statement of personal qualifications shows they wanted seven spiritually mature men who'd immediately have the respect of the church. And once those men were chosen, they could attack the problem as they wished, while the apostles focused on their immediate and primary calling. All in all, an excellent way to handle a touchy situation. So then, step three was finding the right people. Say, finding the right people. 
I'll make sure you... You thought on step two I'd ask you to do it, but I didn't. I'm keeping on your toes. Luke tells us that the proposal pleased the whole group. Everybody loved it. And here's a list of the seven men they chose. Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. I listed all those names because they are important. Do you know why those names are important? Anyone? Any ideas? Every one of those names is Greek. All the names are Greek names, meaning that they chose men from the Greek-speaking section of the church to be in charge of all of the feeding. These men, no doubt, knew the widows personally. They would have the trust of all the Greek-speaking people and would know how to handle any problem that would arise. And then here's the final step in that four-step process. Commissioning the workers. So after the congregation selected the seven men, they were presented to the apostles who laid their hands on them and prayed for them. This final step is important because it puts the full weight of the twelve apostles behind the seven men they were chosen. And it ensures the Greek-speaking widows will know that their concern has been taken to the very highest level and is important. And also sends a message to the congregation this problem has been dealt with and the apostles truly want to see the Greek-speaking widows fed every day just like the Hebrew-speaking ones. And what was the result of solving this problem? Verse 7 says, So the word of God spread. And second, there were many new converts. The number of disciples in Jerusalem spread rapidly. And third, there were conversions in high places. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Jewish priests came to the faith. So by God's grace, an interruption that threatened danger became an opportunity for further growth. So what are we to learn from this? Let's wrap up this message today by considering four truths. The first is this the importance of proper priorities in the work of the Lord. The apostles understood their calling from the Lord, which is why that they refused to personally get involved in feeding the widows. Could they do it? Of course. So what seems harsh and uncaring was actually best for all concerned. That was what they were called to do and that was their role. Sometimes leaders must say no to the good in order to say yes to the best. Let me say that again. Sometimes leaders must say no to the good in order to say yes to the best of what they're designed to do. Because the church starves spiritually when leaders focus on anything other than the Word of God and prayer. This whole series has been about keeping the main thing the main thing. And in every organization, there are a thousand pressures constantly pulling us away from our core concerns. 
That's the firefighting, the crisis management. If you stay in that mode all the time, you can never get to the things that are most important. You never get outside the whirlwind and you continue to spin around and never get to the things that are important that need to happen. Happens to us all the time in our business life, our personal life. You see, in God's work, we must continually build everything upon the Word of God and prayer, going back to it. That's why this initiative on prayer. We're not doing much of prayer, folks. It's a little side thing we put off to the side when it comes to corporately. We spend all this time in worship and all this time in preaching and all this time in doing, you know, communion and breaking bread together and fellowship, but prayer. The church is built upon the Word of God and prayer and we've given it lip service in the past. It's the main thing. When we do that, though, if we focus on the Word of God and prayer like they were doing, ancillary concerns can be addressed and handled. You can tackle all the firefighting and the crisis stuff that comes out of that by spreading everything out to where it needs to be. Because the second thing is, it's impossible for a few people to do all the work of the local church. Amen? The apostles couldn't do their work and feed the widows too. And they were designed to do their work. How many of you rather feed widows or come up here and preach? You figure out real quick about where you think your place might be. There are some things that only I can do as far as my profession or as far as my piece of it. Anybody can feed widows and do probably a better job. Anybody can visit people and probably do a better job. There are certain things that I was trained to do, that leaders are trained to do, whatever it might be. And there are other things that everyone can do or especially are trained to do those things. See, the same is true in every church today. No pastor and staff can do it all. There are hundreds of things that need to be done and therefore hundreds of willing hands are needed. I can preach and teach and work with the leaders lead the staff, meet with people, pray for the hurting, visit the hospitals, attend some meetings, answer questions, take phone calls, dream dreams for the future, and cast a vision. I can stay plenty busy no matter how hard I work, but I can't preach on Sunday morning and work in the nursery too. I can't preach on Sunday morning and make sure that a Sunday school class has the right teacher to help them to lead. See, it's impossible for a few to do all that work that many of us have done over the last year and a half as things caved in. And the interesting part is if you, if you look at 1 Corinthians 12 and you see what it says about the variety of spiritual gifts in the body of Christ, God never intended one man or one group of men, a group of men or women, to do all the work in the local church. We can't do it because God never intended the church to work that way. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about, that God equipped us and gave us spiritual gifts, all of us, 
so that no one or two or three or four people would do everything. That's the beauty of how it was designed. And that leads us to the third thing, which is there is a blessing of many people using their gifts in many ways. It's the flip side of what I just said. In the beginning, the widows are going hungry and their friends are upset. Anger threatens the unity of the body, which is the number one function of the church. And by the end, the anger is gone, the widows are fed, because the seven men are now serving the Lord, recognized by the whole congregation who picked them in the first place. And this is precisely how the body of Christ is supposed to function. People are picked and chosen by their God-given things that allow them to serve in the places of most need. Stephen wasn't called to go out and to do the Word and to pray. Stephen became the first deacon and would die for that as the first martyr. That was his role. Let this sentence sink into your mind. No one does everything, but everyone does something. Say that with me. No one does everything, but everyone does something. One more time. No one does everything, but everyone does something. That is a church. In the biblical model from Acts 2. That's God's plan for the church. Some do more, others less, but everyone does something. And last, the fourth thing is the value of serving others through practical deeds of kindness. The apostles would have been out of the will of God if they had been weight on the tables. The seven men chosen by the congregation were in God's will when they did what the apostles wouldn't do. It's not an either-or proposition. We need leaders who will devote themselves to the Word of God and to prayer. And we need deacons who will serve the widows. That's why in other churches you use those words differently. They call people who are deacons of a church, like in the Baptist church, what they're talking about. Lay folks who are in charge of the care of the church and its people. We use deacons as a clergy term. Those who are gifted to serve, they wear a sideways uh, ordination stole, which is like a towel over them. That's what it symbolizes, like Jesus had. And the deacons go and find specialized service and they assist elders. But they have some position out in the world as well as the church. Both are absolutely necessary for the church to function properly. And in John 12, 26, Jesus says this, Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the ones who serve me. We honor Jesus by serving. Is it required to believe in Jesus? No. Is it required to be a disciple of Jesus? Yes. Write me all the notes you want, all the letters you want about saying that. 
it is required to serve as a disciple. Because that's the very heart of what a disciple is. We're heading into the fall. We're heading back into things. We're getting ready to gear up children's programming, youth programming, some adult programming, all of those things. We have spent a year and a half with a handful of people doing all the pieces this church did before with 200 people. In order for us to do those things in the fall, we're going to need your help in other areas you've never served in before or never thought about. We need folks who are willing to get background checked just to be a hall monitor on the children's wing. You don't have to teach or do anything else besides get background checked because you can be the second person. We don't have enough volunteers in any of the areas of ministry to put two people in a room. We're going to need help in all kinds of other ways. If the one thing the staff would tell you, if they all gathered together and stood up here in one line, what they would tell you is they are tired. And while you're ready to come back, and the church is ready to come back, they all look at August and go, oh my gosh, how are we possibly going to be able to do this? We want to split the youth into two groups so that the younger ones are not with the older ones because the older ones want to have a place where they can be able to do what they do. I don't have enough volunteers to do that. We need people to help us in worship on Sunday morning to sign up and say, I'm willing to be that front person, to be that guest person who's going to come out there and make that person feel welcome in each one of us who come together. We don't tend to have a problem with getting like feed the need and things like that. You guys are amazing about doing those things. But we can't fill the holes anymore. Everybody has got to come back in the ways they feel comfortable. But if we're going to do all of these things, we can't have Wednesday night every week. We can't pull that off. It's too much on Davis. There's no way we can make food every week. We're going to do it once a month and try to do that so we have one time to gather together. But then we need folks to help set the tables because guess who's been setting those tables up for those meals and getting everything ready to go? All staff. Thankful to all the Camp run up Camp run up couldn't have happened if it wasn't for all of the lay volunteers who came out to do that. Now think about that in every area of ministry. Before I get accused of chiding somebody or trying you know, to, to push you in a place you don't want to be, that is not what I'm trying to do. But what I'm trying to do is to get us all to start to come back in our minds the same way about serving on the everyday stuff as well as the special events. So that we can be able to do all the ministry that you want us to be able to do. We're here to help. We're here to equip we're here to give you whatever it is you need to be able to do that, but we can't be your hands. I can't be at the back greeting folks while we're trying to get ready for worship. So in the same way, we have a problem which becomes an opportunity in which we can rise up to our best 
We can offer ourselves to God and pray about, you know, how is God leading me to do that? Yeah, I could get background checked, just be there in the hallway. The kids don't scare me that much. I could always run away. But even that simple thing of just being somebody present so that Stephanie, when something happens, right now somebody got injured in a room, we can't do much to be able to have safe sanctuaries to protect our kids because we can't send Stephanie into that room because then all of a sudden we're out of what we're supposed to be doing. Your presence standing in a hallway, just looking down it and smiling can make all the difference so that the kids can be able to do what they need to do. The early church did the same thing. They just needed to come together and be able to figure out how as leaders and disciples to be able to make sure we're doing all those things. We were fortunate and we were glad and we were thankful that for a year and a half we could stand in the gap and do everything that happened on this side of the camera as staff. But now as everybody starts to come back in their various ways, we need you to be able to step into that gap and help us in all the ways that we might be able to ask. That includes the prayer room. That includes other things, too. There are lots of things that we would normally do when we have a fall back to everything. We just need your help to pull that off. And I just know, if you give that time and that effort and that prayer, that God's going to honor you in ways that you cannot even imagine. Psalm 146, as Dana comes up. And see if you, when you listen to this psalm, see if you can see why it fits in with service today. Praise the Lord. Let my whole being praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with all my life. I will sing praises to my God as long as I live. Don't trust leaders. Don't trust any human beings. There's no saving help with them. Their breath leaves them and they go back to the ground on the very same day their plans die too. The person whose help is the God of Jacob, the person whose help rests on the Lord their God, is truly happy. God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. God, who is faithful forever. Who gives justice to people who are oppressed. Who gives bread to people who are starving. The Lord, who frees prisoners. The Lord, who makes the blind see. The Lord, who straightens up those who are bent low. The Lord, who loves the righteous. The Lord, who protects immigrants. Who helps orphans and widows but who makes the way of the wicked twist and turn. The Lord will rule forever. Zion, your God, will rule from one generation to the next. Praise the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's stand and sing together.
us out to shine. Right? Send us out to shine. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would use me to serve others so that I may be a part of changing lives for your glory. Father, if I am the light of the world, I pray with your help I could shine brighter each and every day. I give myself to you. I am your servant, and I am so excited to see what you can do through me. Go from this lighthouse on the corner of Glenbrook and shine brightly for the world to see Christ in you. And everybody both here and at home said, Amen. Amen, amen. Go with God this morning. You're dismissed.